fitness, nutrition, sleep, longevity, performance, fat loss, and all the keys to a life of health, happiness, and success. I'm Jed Zimmer, your host, and welcome to The Health Project. Welcome back, guys. We've got episode 19 tonight of The Health Project. And it's very exciting to be back. Obviously, last week, we did have a week off there just to give you guys a bit of a, a, bit of a chance to catch up on some previous episodes and get up to date with, um, with things just before a big couple of months are coming. So very exciting to be back. And tonight, we've got Dr. Jamie Seaman, who is a board-a-fied third gynecologist with a background in nutrition, exercise, and health science. And she's also a current fellow in integrative medicine and a board-certified ketogenic nutrition specialist. She's someone who's experimented with a low-carbohydrate diet, a ketogenic diet, and also a carnivore diet, which are three very extremes when it comes to the diet side of things. So she knows a hell of a lot, and she also specializes in women's health, guys. But it's not just for all the women out there. This episode's got something for young, old, male, female, whoever it might be. But again, just before jumping into that, I'm going to answer a few questions which have been sent and posed to me over the past couple of weeks, starting with intermittent fasting, which is it's something that's... Um, it's been discussed quite a lot on some of these interviews with a lot of these experts, and it's something that I also include as part of my regime re- quite regularly. So for me, just recently, I've been asked a lot, why why intimate fast? Um, what does this look like for me? What are, what are the benefits with it? And pretty much the timing side of things, because obviously with intimate fasting, there is some debate about there how long you should do this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover a fair bit of that. So for me personally, why intimate fast? I do this for... For quite a few reasons, to be honest with you, I started doing a lot of reading early days about autophagy benefits. Now, autophagy is basically the cleansing of your cells. So when it comes to time-restricted feeding or intimate fasting, basically, so intimate fasting there is basically just a period of time where you are not eating. So this has been proven to give your cells the ability to to basically cleanse, so detoxification of the cells, which is known as autophagy. So I do do it for that reason. And also the other reason I do it is for the fat loss benefits. Um, I I found with myself just through a lot of experimentation that if I am in a fasted state and I do go out and perform a exercise session, in terms of body composition, this has been probably one of the biggest things that has worked for me. I um, I'm energized throughout those sessions and it just seems it just seems to work for me, and I I certainly don't wouldn't advocate this for a lot of people. Um, I do have clients who probably are under a fair bit more stress for me and for them intimate fasting, or in particular exercising on a fasted state just doesn't seem to work. So you got to experiment with it and find if it works for you. Are you energized during the session and all those kind of all those kind of factors, but. Autophagy is one great reason, fat loss, and the other is also muscle sparing. So with um with with me I know I find it quite hard at times to maintain muscle mass because my metabolic rate is quite high and I'm constantly you know, I'm doing some form of exercise all throughout the day, even if that's not a specific exercise session, I'm off quite often, you know, up moving, walking around or or whatever it might be. So you would often you would often think that fasting and and not eating is actually gonna gonna reduce the side effects and you might actually lose more muscle. But after doing a bit of researching and especially after chatting with Jamie Seaman, which we're about to cover today, so it's a great topic to be discussing. I realized that ketones, which so by intimate fasting you do get into state of ketosis a lot of the time, um, and ketones, which are the fuel for being in the state of ketosis, are actually very muscle sparing. So, so for me. Um, exercising in that fasted state is um it's it's it seems to be a great way to to actually assist in maintaining lean muscle while getting those fat loss benefits so between the three of them that's personally why i like to intimate fasting now how often do i do this 
and what are their hours sort of like how long does this fast usually consist for me so I actually do some form of intimate fasting every single day so seven days of the week but that's only a 12-hour fast so it's easier said than done when you think about it like that. So a 12-hour fast basically just looks like 8 p.m. I might finish eating or you generally speaking, that's actually a little bit early. So it might be 7 p.m. or 7.30. And then I just won't eat till 7, 7 a.m. or 7.30 the next morning. And that's 12 hours there with no food. Um, and that's, that's something that's easy said than done. It doesn't take a lot of effort or thought process and it's pretty natural. So a lot of you guys out there would actually be doing this without even knowing. So I like to implement that that form of 12 hours of fasting every single day. And then also once or twice a week, I'll include a, a 16 hour fast into the picture as well. So that might look like finish eating at 7 p.m. And then I won't, um, I won't eat until about 11 a.m. the next morning. Sometimes this might even be a little bit longer. So again, that's, that's sort of once or twice a week and and just going back to what I said at the start, I, I will like to get an exercise session in during during that fast. Um, I'll have some black coffee to, to assist with the autophagy benefits. Um, and to be honest with you, I feel, I feel incredible. It's those days where I, I think I feel feel best the most. And then just lastly, something that I'm now implementing is a 24-hour fast just once a month. Um I've I've only done one of these and it was to be honest it was quite a challenge but it's something that I'm I'm gonna you know play around with work on a little bit and implement into the into the regime just once a month where I'm basically hoping just to teach my body that it really can thrive off not um, constantly relying on food as a fuel source um, and really assisting those detoxification benefits so. That's pretty much it for me, guys, in terms of the intimate fasting side of things, why I do it, how I do it, um, and how often I'm sort of doing it. But we're about to, we're actually going to go into that in today's interview with Dr. Jamie Seaman, who has um, done a lot of research into it, and she can certainly cover a lot more than I certainly can, guys. So I hope you hope you enjoy this episode, and we'll see you back next week. Yeah, so... I grew up as a multi-sport athlete, so I was super active, super athletic, but I never really ate well. I never really paid attention to my nutrition. As a child, it really wasn't something that we focused on in my, you know, in our household. Mm. And I left high school, I went to college, I was a collegiate athlete. I played for the University of Nebraska, I played softball, and there I got a degree in nutrition and exercise science. So yeah. I'm getting this degree in nutrition and my goal was to go to medical school, but it was kind of my fallback plan if I, if I didn't become a doctor, but mm. I left college and I went to medical school and in medical school was the first time in my life that my activity level really went down. And so here I am with this nutrition and exercise science degree and I'm not as active and I decided to, my husband and I decided to get pregnant during medical school with our oldest daughter. So I yep. basically had three pregnancies within 60 months of each other. So we have three daughters. And during my pregnancies, I failed my glucose testing. Mm. I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism after my first daughter. And, you know, really from the outside, I was not obese. I mean, wow. if you, you know, look at pictures of me, my BMI was like 26. Mm. And then during my third pregnancy, I had kind of a bad tragedy. I lost one of my best friends during my pregnancy. And it was kind of this turning point where I thought, I have a medical degree and a nutrition degree, and I have all these health problems. And 
I'm really taking things for granted. Mm. And so I kind of set out really on a personal journey. And I thought, I can't tell my patients how to live their life if I can't figure out how to live my own. And so I started to try different lifestyle, you know, things. I did paleo for a while. I tried Whole30. I tried all these different approaches. And um, we decided on the ketogenic diet, you know, knowing that I had failed my glucose testing, there's a lot of diabetes in my family. It just really made sense that reducing the amount of dietary carbohydrates would help me with not only losing weight, but, you know, feeling better. I'd never tested my blood sugars or anything like that. But, um, so I decided to get labs and I was found out I was actually a pre-diabetic. So then it really made sense. And so we started on the ketogenic diet back in, uh, well, 2015, 2016, and we've done different variations. We've cycled carbs and did targeted carbs. We've done carnivore and mm. we've kind of settled on what seems to be the most sustainable way of eating. And it's kind of what I call a carnivore-ish diet. So mm. it's very heavy in animal foods and meats, um, small amounts of veggies and nuts and things like that, because we we don't have autoimmune conditions or anything like that. We tolerate them just fine. And it's just great for variety and for social purposes. And we feel amazing. I, my hemoglobin A1C is the lowest it's ever been. I don't have hypothyroidism anymore. My husband doesn't have migraines. My friends and family have adopted this lifestyle. My dad has completely reversed his diabetes. He's off four blood pressure medications. And, and when I really started to implement it into my practice, you know, knowing that about 88% of America where I practice has metabolic disease. I mean, it was like shooting fish in a barrel, right? I mean, most of these women have PCOS and insulin resistance and all these problems that could really, really be impacted by their nutrition. And so it's been a game changer for me, not only in my personal life, you know, I came into this on a very personal level, but now I'm kind of on a crusade in women's health to, Mm. to really fix the health of our women, because if they can optimize their health before pregnancy, it could really change the health for generations to come. I love it. I think that's a great message. I want to ask, so who do you think a ketogenic diet is suitable for? Obviously, um, individual diets going to work different for different people. So people might work best on a higher carbohydrate diet. Who do you actually think um, is a candidate? And um, I guess, what are the steps to take to understand what diet is going to work best for you? Yeah. So I, people always hear me say, be your own expert, because you're right, we're built from, you know, different genes and different DNA. And I think that our bodies do respond very differently to the energy sources that we put in. Mm. I think across the board, anybody would, would agree that it's really vegetable oils and sugar in our modern diets that have really created a lot of the modern diseases that we have. And so no matter if you choose to eat high carb, low fat or high fat, low carb, uh, you know, I think elimination of vegetable oils and sugar right. um, is is still extremely important. And the more yeah. you can eat real whole foods with with no ingredient list, you're mm-hmm. probably going to be healthy in some way, shape, or form. Because you know, there's vegans that are healthy, there's carnivores that are healthy, and there's everything that's in between. Mm-hmm. So how I like to look at it is um, one misconception of the ketogenic diet is that it should be low in protein. And I don't think that that's a good recommendation for everybody. I think that if you need a ketogenic diet for a medical purpose, like you have Mm. epilepsy and you're going to have a seizure, if your beta hydroxybutyrate falls below three, then it would be important to moderate your protein intake. But for most of my female patients, 
we keep protein um, still at a very moderate to high level because protein really, I don't think of it as an energy source. Protein yeah. is like the building blocks. Mm. And we get less efficient at digesting protein and utilizing it as we age. So I, I think that protein's the, the number one important thing. So then your choices are, do you eat the rest of your calories from carbohydrates or do you eat them from fat? Well, we can do testing and we can test the patient. We can see how insulin sensitive you are. So that's one option is to look and see what a patient's insulin sensitivity is. That may guide us and, you know, how many carbohydrates, you know, we allow this person to eat. But I will, I will tell you that what we find with time is that even if you're very carb sensitive now with time, especially in women, as you go through menopause and you, and you start to age, your mitochondria become less efficient, less effective at utilizing glucose as a fuel source. Okay. So it's something that you constantly have to be kind of checking in on. So I think across the board, most people would benefit from a reduction in carbs yeah. and using carbs. Really, I kind of say you have to earn your carbs. So really using carbs around times of exercise, pre and post workout and times of the day when you're most active. I think that baseline, you know, using fat as a fuel source, baseline fat oxidation and using carbs is kind of like, I think of it as like if, if you're playing a video game and you get to hit the turbo button, right? That makes your car like go really fast. I think it's like you use fat most of the time. And when you need to hit the turbo button is when you get to maybe have some carbs. Right. But I do agree, you know, there are some people that eat very high carbohydrate diets and, and lower fat diets, but in women, I think that's concerning because our fat, you know, fat literally is what our sex steroids, mm. uh, sex hormones are made from. They're made from cholesterol. So I think we have mm. to be really careful about promoting low fat diet. I think they both have to kind of be weighed individually, you know, right. uh, and to those individual needs. I want to ask when it comes to athletes, I know working in the strength field, a, a, you know, a stereotype is that to build muscle, you, you got to have a significant amount of carbs. And I guess you're proof that that's generally not the case. Does the carbohydrate content, does, does this go up for, you know, I guess you could say athletes and physically active people, or can, can this be achievable on a ketogenic diet? And I guess I want to, I want to shift into sort of looking at more sort of strength-based exercises and high intensity um, because we know studies have shown that the ketogenic diet for endurance athletes is beneficial. Um, but just in terms of building muscle and strength, is it achievable? Yeah. Yeah. You bring up a good point. So it depends if you're talking about, you know, anaerobic versus aerobic type of exercises. And I think what we've always believed is that you do need carbohydrates for these for these high intensity, you know, movements myself, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't consider myself to be like an elite athlete. I don't compete on any level right now or anything like that, but I do high intensity interval training and strength training as my primary training method. And I have tried using carbs versus doing it fasted, you know, lots of different variations. And I've never had a perceived, a perceived difference in energy or strength. But I do think that it's important to understand that when you are flipping to using fat oxidation as a fuel source, that there is this period of adaptation that mm. you have to go through. And I think that's when most people who are athletic or, or athletes are going to feel like their performance is really suffering because mm. you're actually having to train your body to you to lay down those transporters in the mitochondria to actually, you know, make ketones and use them so just it's on that, not something sorry. where you can just say well I tomorrow just 
yeah. roughly how long how long does this adaptation take obviously it's going to be different for each person but um is this something that will occur over weeks months long term yeah jeff bullock is probably the biggest researcher in this area and it's it's very individualized so it's not like we can say well if you just do it for two weeks you'll be adapted it's really mm. a process that does occur over weeks to months and it's kind of a continuum like the longer you do it the more you train your body, the more transporters you lay down. And there are some kind of tips and tricks to adapting a little faster, like maybe use of exogenous ketones or ketone mm. esters yeah. um, in these situations where athletes want to adapt a little faster. But it's not like you, there's not a test you can do. I can't draw your blood and say, oh, congratulations, you're now keto adapted. Mm. It's just something where you just like if you were training to run a marathon, you just keep running more miles and more miles and more miles and eventually your body will be a lot better at doing it. So you mm. have to just continually train it. And I think that's how a lot of the endurance athletes have, have started to utilize it, you know, is, is training ketogenic and then using small amounts of carbs, you know, for performance. And I think that, I think for something that's anaerobic, like let's say a power lifter or something yeah. like that, they can still utilize carbs for performance, but mm the ketogenic diet is actually pretty good at sparing muscle glycogen. Mm. And so, you know, there's, there's more studies happening in that space, but those would be the athletes that may be better off utilizing a higher amount of carbs around performance mm. activities. I want to ask um, if, if someone is following a, a diet that, you know, it's, it's balanced, they do consume a reasonable amount of carbohydrates. I know I've got clients who are in this boat and then they do take exogenous ketones and they try intermittent fasting as a way to try and get into ketosis. Is, is this achievable? Can you, with the use of exogenous ketones and fasting, can you still get in, into ketosis if you are consuming a reasonable amount of carbohydrates? Well, so I think the biggest question is what does your body do in the presence of, of both carbohydrates and ketones, you know, which one is it utilizing? Um, now you can't just drink exogenous ketones and, and I mean, you are in a state of ketosis, right? But you're not necessarily oxidizing fat if you've still mm. got a lot of glucose. Yeah. Um, so it kind of depends on why you're using them. I talk to people and I say, they're a tool, you know, they're a tool to be used. My experimentation with them, they're a great appetite suppressant. Right. They're good. They're good for keto adaption. They're great for what I, you know, cognitive performance. Um, my brain feels really good because I can get my ketone levels quite high mm. using exogenous ketones. And I have difficulty getting them to that level um, just on a ketogenic diet because the longer that you do this, I, I don't get super high BHB levels in my blood because my body is so efficient at utilizing the ketones that they don't mm. just hang around in the blood. <laughs> mm, yeah. So I think it depends on why you're using them. Um, is it harmful to consume exogenous ketones when you're eating a high carb diet? I guess my question would be, what is the, you know, what is the purpose of using them? Mm. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's very true. Um, we touched on protein early, early days. Um, again, when it comes to the ketogenic diet, I've, I've had a few people with the view that if you do consume a high protein diet, um, this is going to raise your insulin levels um, and it's going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of harmful side effects. Is there any, any science behind this? Obviously there is science behind the fact that it can rain, uh, raise <laughs> insulin levels, but why is it so important that if we are consuming um, a high fat diet to have those protein levels up? 
Yeah, so half the amino acids are glucogenic. So we do see an insulin response to, to about half the amino acids, but the insulin response to protein pales in comparison to the insulin response of carbohydrates. So it's still mm. much, much, much smaller. Now, mm. will it, you know, quote unquote, kick you out of ketosis? I think it depends how long you've been doing this. I think yeah. if you're trying to keto adapt, you may want to keep your protein a little bit lower versus somebody that's very adapted i think they could do a much higher protein intake and still probably register ketones in the bloodstream right i mean if you don't consume carbs your body has to make them through gluconeogenesis and whether yeah. that's from from fat or protein so um i have no issue with people eating higher protein i think that the vast majority of people would benefit from a higher protein approach like mm. i said unless you have some condition that requires a certain level of ketones and i um, and that's, you know, not mm. that many people. <laughs> Just outside of nutrition, is there any other strategies to sort of stop that insulin spike? I know for me, I love, if I'm going to, if I am going to have carbs post a workout, um, I like going for a walk. Um, there's little theories like apple cider vinegar. I know Ben Greenfield is of the view that cold thermogenesis in the morning, stop that insulin spike throughout the day. Anything like this that you'd like to sort of put in place or advocate? Yeah, no, I totally agree that there's definitely some hacks and tips and tricks to consuming carbs and not getting a huge amount of glycemic variability. Mm. Now, um, I think it's very individualized. You know, I've seen some people, I'm a huge fan of continuous glucose monitoring. So yep. I think it's an amazing tool to look at glycemic variability. And But if I were to eat an apple and you were to eat an apple, those curves could look completely different. Mm. I do agree, you know, things like berberine consumption or apple cider vinegar and some of these things can definitely diminish the area under the curve mm. or definitely consuming them around areas of activity or in the first half of the day. I completely right. agree with those things. Awesome. I want to touch the carnival diet a little bit. Um, can you just touch on a little bit what this looks like? So a little bit of, um, I'm going to say a little bit of a daily routine of what your nutrition looks like. Um, and so I guess the benefits of going carnival and, is there any sort of side effects? Do you have to supplement quite a lot? Yeah, just touch into the carnivore side of it a little bit. Yeah, so I mean, I think that there's still a lot of questions to be answered in the carnivore space because it's just not anything that's been well studied. But when you look at basically completely eliminating a macronutrient, I mean, it's essentially zero carb and you're just left with protein and fat. I think there's a lot of questions about the ratio of protein and fat that you should be consuming. Mm. And then I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, this idea of nose to tail, because if you're not eating organ meats, it's certainly possible that you could be deficient in some B vitamins, um, vitamin C, uh, mm. calcium, you know, there's lots of other nutrients and minerals that get brought up. I think that if you're, you know, truly eating carnivore, first of all, I think first question is why. I do think there are certain populations, the carnivore diet is the basically the ultimate elimination diet. So for mm -hmm. patients that have really bad autoimmune conditions, skin conditions, I've used the diet in some of these patients with, yep. with great success. But I think at a certain point, starting to see what plants they may tolerate is a good idea because I'm just not convinced that women in particular were meant to be zero carb. Yep. There's some concepts like your leptin and your LH that do kind of need reset sometimes with, with a, a minimal amount of carbohydrate intake. Right. So I think that it's, um, it's important for women to hear that. What does a day look like for me eating mostly carnivore? 
I um, am a fan of two to three meals a day in about a six to eight hour window. I typically will work out fasted in the morning. If I'm in a phase where I'm trying to build some muscle, I might have some eggs after, after the gym, but otherwise I probably wouldn't eat until my first meal around noontime. Okay. And that, that would be usually about eight to anywhere from maybe eight to 12 ounces of grass fed beef or yep. steak. I will do other proteins, um, chicken. We do a lot of wild caught salmon in our house. Mm. And, um, and then of course eggs dinner would look exactly the same. Um, I think that, um, if I were to be, you know, strict carnivore, I'd probably be doing some bone meal, um, you know, adding other collagen sources, other organ meat. We do eat Mm. liver, um, which I think is a basically like nature's multivitamin. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's so awesome. yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of adding in those organ meats. If you're going to be, if you're going to be doing strict carnivore, it is a, I mean, a, I've seen people get pretty lean <laughs> doing mm. it. And we, my husband and I did it for the first time in November of uh, 2018. Yep. And um, it was about day 21 when I, the texture, I was just really wanting something like crunchy, like a salad or something. It was, yeah. Um, so I don't know from a sustainability <laughs> standpoint, you know, we've seen people that have thrived on a carnivore diet for many, many years, but I think for the, for the masses, I don't know that it's the most sustainable from a social perspective. Right. And you talked about the intimate fasting. Um, are you doing this for the getting into ketosis? Are you doing it for autophagy benefits? Um, what's your reasoning there? And you also touched on muscle building. And again, a myth is that from, you know, regular fasting and all that, you it is hard to build muscle is this any any truth behind this so i i intermittent fast for um a couple reasons yes for ketosis for autophagy and really for compliance it's much easier for me to stick to my plan if i keep a smaller eating window i'm less Mm -hmm. likely to uh, be persuaded into snacks and other things that might be at the office or in in our house Mm -hmm. or something like that Um, but yeah, I think that if you're, when we look at muscle building, you know, the, the vast majority of the literature will say to have six meals per day, mm. three hours apart so that you're really hitting good, uh, stimulation in these muscle, you know, protein synthesis. And mm. it is, you know, a thought that uh, these people that go to one meal a day, like they're going to lose all their muscle, but what they, what they're not remembering is that the ketogenic diet is actually quite sparing to the the amino acids in the muscles it's quite protective to the lean body mass mm-hmm. and which is amazing because if i am asking someone to lose 100 pounds they're likely going to lose 100 pounds but a lot of that not a lot of that majority of that will be fat but they're going mm-hmm. to lose some lean body mass i mean that's what we see in studies i've seen quite a few people and i myself have body composition testing to show it Mm. Um, Danny Vega, a couple other people have DEXA scans as well. I was on a ketogenic diet eating two to three protein intakes per day. And in in 365 days, I lost 27 pounds of body fat and put on nine pounds of muscle. So we never really thought that you could gain muscle, you know, Mm. in a calorie deficit while you're losing lean body mass. But I think that with a with a lower carb approach it truly is possible mm. and do you think training in a fasted state is is beneficial for a lot of these adaptations when it comes to fat loss 
Yeah. I mean, I really think it is because you're really forcing your body to create that energy. And what's been interesting having the continuous glucose monitor is when I wake up in the morning and I'm completely fasted and I go to the gym and I, it doesn't matter if I do a strength workout or a HIIT workout. Yeah. The the gluconeogenesis is amazing to watch on the continuous glucose monitor. I can get glucose levels even up into the one fifties just by doing HIIT training. So now my body is making that that glucose, you know, from protein and fat oxidation. So it's right. um it's pretty amazing to just watch the body do what it was designed to do. Absolutely. Now, do you following your exercise session? Are you the food nutrition in straight away? Uh, there's some theory. Ben Greenfield, who I just recently spoke with, um, he's of the view that you know allowing your body to adapt by itself. He doesn't eat probably an hour after a meal. Um, he, he said it's got some growth hormone benefits um, or are you getting in nutrients straight after a session and what are you breaking that fast with? Yeah, I've tried it both ways, but I think that no matter what you break, what time of day you break your fast, you should always be breaking your fast with at least 30 to 50 grams of protein. Immediately when you break that fast, your body is looking for those building blocks. It's looking for those amino acids. Mm. I've tried it both ways. I don't, um, I don't feel different. I don't, it's not like I come home from the gym and I'm hungry. Mm. Um, and from a body composition standpoint, um, I don't know. I've, I've played with it both ways. I'm, I'm not convinced that you necessarily have to eat right after. Right. Lastly, is there any, um, I'm going to go back to the training side of things. You, you mentioned hit, high intensity, um, weight training. Again, with, with a lot of females, I think they, uh, they just try and avoid any sort of strength-based training. Um, what would be advice? And again, I want to talk about finding the balance between training for health, longevity, um, performance. So I know cardio is often demonized. First of all, do you think cardio does have a place when it comes to sort of health and longevity? I think that all exercise is good exercise. All right. movement is good movement. If your goal is body composition, metabolic health, I think it's, I, I think you have to think of it, you know, people say like 90, 10, 75, yep. 25. I think it's a hundred and a hundred. I mean, I think it's, I always say fat is lost in the kitchen, muscles gained in the gym. So if your goal is to lose fat, you've got to control your diet. If your goal is to grow muscle, you've got to be doing resistance training. Mm-hmm. Cardio is, yes, there's benefits to aerobic exercise, but the vast majority of women would benefit more long-term from working Yep. building muscle. You've seen these runners. I mean, look at any endurance mm. runner They're They don't have muscle mass, right? Yep. <laughs> and that, I mean, just think of it, you get COVID-19 or you get cancer, or you get anything that puts you in a hospital bed for multiple weeks, mm. and you're going to start losing your lean body mass at a rapid pace. And as we age, we lose about 10% of it with each decade of our life. So mm. If you really want to hedge your bets against metabolic disease, you'd be best off trying to build as much muscle as you can in your 20s and 30s and 40s mm. uh, when your hormone levels are, are much higher. And women really shouldn't be afraid of the weights. I think, it's, I think it's honestly more of a social stigma than it is anything else that women will be perceived as masculine if they have muscles you know, or something along these lines. And, and women really should not be afraid of the weights because they're going to get what I call more bang for your buck um, doing resistance training. Now, HIIT training, all of these types of exercise, they're a form of stress to the body, you mm. know? And so when you're talking about longevity, we really have to be weighing training and recovery. I think there's a lot of people out there that are overtraining. It's a real thing. And if you overtrain, you can really be driving your cortisol high, not be recovering well. So 
we just, always just on that are you are you tracking your recovery in any way whether it's heart rate variability um or it's as simple as sort of just gauging your body and finding out how you were really feeling yeah, I mean, I listen to my body intuitively, but I do track, I have an aura ring, so I do track heart rate variability and, and uh, resting heart rate and some of those other parameters. I think they are useful. I think data mm. is very useful because we are individuals. Yeah, awesome. Um, and is there any, I'm going to use the word hacks again, I like, is there any hacks that you put in place on a daily basis, whether it's, um, you know, infrared, sauna, cold thermogenesis, anything like this that you're doing daily? Yeah, so I use sauna, I use um, I use cold thermogenesis, but I think there's some debates in the literature with lean body mass that mm. you know doing cold thermogenesis after a workout can actually inhibit muscle protein synthesis. So I think yeah. you have to kind of weigh that. Um, so I use just uh, on that. Would you recommend? Um, is is this something you should probably do the day after a workout when your body has had that adaptation um, or? Right. I probably wouldn't do it immediately post-workout. Yep. Um, I used photobiomodulation, so red yep. light therapy. Um, and on that same realm, I, I, do, I use blue light blocking glasses to try to yep. get better uh, REM sleep because really mm. the majority of our actual recovery happens while we're sleeping. Mm. Are you, besides blue light blocking glasses, is there any other steps you're taking? Um, do you have a, a sleep or an evening routine or it's as matter as blocking as much blue light as possible? Well, I live a pretty crazy schedule. I've got yeah, three small children and I'm a physician and my husband works as a police officer. And so yeah. um, my quote unquote routine looks different every single day, depending mm. on what's going on at the hospital. But um, I, I try to limit any you know screen time within an hour of my bedtime. I you know put the blue blockers on and mm. um, I've tried you know different things, uh, melatonin, 5-HTP, CBD, um, I sleep really well to begin yeah. with. So but I'll tell you what is ketosis is actually very, very good for sleep. And yeah. when we look at people who are keto adapted, they tend to need less sleep. Mm. Yeah. Incredible. Oh, it's, um, people have got the other view that they sort of need, they need carbs for their hormones to be able to sleep with the tired serotonin and those kind of things. But there you go. Um, and the supplements, is there any supplementation that you take on a daily basis, whether it's creatine, um, just anything part of your schedule whether it's if you are on the carnivore diet ketogenic that you feel the need to supplement with well i don't i think creatine is an amazing supplement but i don't take it because i eat so much meat that yeah. i'm i'm barely certain i'm getting enough creatine yeah absolutely. Um, so so just on that then so for for those who don't necessarily consume a lot of meat this is something they should probably supplement with on a daily basis yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's a great supplement. Mm. Um, the other one that a lot of people should be taking is vitamin D, yep. um, huge benefits. And I live in a part of the country where we don't get enough sunlight during the mm. year. So that's something that I almost always have to supplement. Awesome. Um, I don't supplement with things like fish oil. I would recommend people to eat real whole food and salmon roe is like a great way to get your DHA and fish oil. If you're not, mm. um, eating about three to four servings of cold water fish a week. I think right. that's an excellent, what I will call quote unquote supplement, even though it's like a real whole food supplement. Mm. Um, beyond that, I think that supplements should be for very specific reasons. Like I don't, I don't just blanket supplement a lot of people. Um, there's lots of other great supplements out there that I use with patients. Like berberine is a great one for glycemic control. Mm. Um, but it just kind of depends specifically what you're using them for. 
Awesome. I love it. Well, I won't take up any any longer, Jamie. As I said at the start, I really appreciate you jumping on and being a part of this this book project. I'm excited to have you on it. And yeah, as I said, you're a huge inspiration. I follow the work you do very closely. So thanks for all the work you do and I'll keep in touch with everything. Appreciate it. Thank you, Judd. 